So this is our last talk on the third foundation, uh, in which the Buddha's instructions are very clear and very simple. Uh, simply to uh, notice states of mind, uh, regardless of whether they're present or changing or absent, and just being aware of the passing movement of these states without any attempt to try to alter or change them at all. Now that is an extraordinarily difficult practice. Okay? It's so simple. And all the instructions up until this point have been pointing towards leaving ourselves completely alone. But when we get in there and we actually sit down and we start watching the phenomena of mind, we want to tinker. We don't necessarily like what's going on. We aren't particularly pleased at its momentary display. We would prefer this state rather than that state. And this state has no spiritual implication. This state is what I would have if I were a worldly thief. <laughs> <laughs> and so the implications of each state have a very personal, a personal label to them. And so it's because of that personalization of each state of mind that we have a reaction to it and it doesn't fit our particular uh, um, image that we are participating in in that moment we are watching the state of mind. If we think we're spiritual and it's a non-spiritual state, then it throws us off, et cetera, et cetera. So this last talk, up until this time, we have been looking at different states and noticing how each state uh, divides us out in reaction to it, creating a division through a particular theme and attitude that that state brings up and a particular history that encompasses us within that state and a memory that surrounds us and then uh, a locked-in relationship to life through a particular state, be it worry, be it fear, be it desire, whatever. And so we've looked at a whole number of states of mind, noticing how we are drawn out of that state of mind by various and sundry reasons, and that often there is a pain association, a pain body associated with why it is that we draw ourselves out and why it is that we hold on to that state. So this particular talk tonight, since it's our last one of this theme, looks at the evolution of going from the personal to the impersonal. That is, the evolution of being strongly identified with each display of the mind as representing who we are and what we are about to being able to see in a very uh, light and conditioned way that these things are just manifestations that really don't represent us at all. So that movement from a very personal implication of mind to an impersonal implication of mind is really the evolution of meditation itself, is it not? And it's very disturbing to uh, 
begin to see how this evolves because somewhere along the way we get our buttons get pushed we either want to have a personal representation and a personal relationship to our mind and yet be in control of it or we'd like to get rid of the whole darn thing and be completely out of it altogether and we are somewhere along that line and many of us are attempting to bring forth that intentionality into our practice and that has implications on how we practice and what it is that we get out of practice which I'll go into a little later but let's remember that this particular uh, third foundation was the initial talk was about how the sense of me and the mind are not two different things the sense of I is a mental process in and of itself that somehow the sense of I gets misrepresented by the mind to think that it's outside of the mind having a mental experience when actually it is a mental phenomena and therefore as a mental phenomena should be studied within this third foundation which is the study of these of mental phenomena and what does it say to do with every mental phenomena oh it's just this don't do anything about it so that means we are not to do anything about ourselves now it really gets personal so let's look for a moment uh, to see how it is that we get lost within the spatial representation of self and mind state and just to come back to the second foundation as I like to uh, just um, review briefly our way up to the th third and through the third and that is that uh, every experience has a conditioned feeling tone a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral tone associated with it that we have imparted to that experience it's conditioned within us by our history and so when a particular state of mind arises it too has a feeling tone it we have a an appreciation for it or a displeasure to it or no particular feeling at all about it and if it's an encouraging tone that is one that we've uh, a state of mind one that we have have a long history with and a lot of pleasure around then very quickly as that state gets uh, a feeling of pleasure associated with it comes the memory associated with that particular state of mind and the circumstances from which it arises the conditioned circumstances externally defines what that mind state will be as it arises and then our feeling tone about it is the embellishment we give that arising once it, it has occurred that arising of our our state of mind and the history and memory we have associated with it uh, gives us a tremendous feeling of three-dimensionality like I've been here before I know what this is all about uh, I have had a history with this particular object and this state of mind is comfortable and I and it's just like a, a home that you've been in for your whole life and you put your feet up on the coffee, ta a coffee table and you have a complete relaxed relaxed response to it and it has a sense of everything being known within it and so states of mind themselves have that context have that connotation and we then 
begin to associate ourselves with certain states of mind that have that pleasant representation and we of course want to dissociate ourselves from those which do not. It's the sense though that the memory has kicked in and when the memory kicks in there's a very strong personalization of that process. It's like there's a very strong sense of I being connected to that particular state and a very strong implication of that state for the sense of I and for the I's uh, image of him or herself. And so this very, very concrete and almost tangible feeling of me coming up as a state of mind arises. And just pick one of your most pleasurable states of mind or one of your least pleasurable ones and just, you can just just by bringing it or recalling it to consciousness, you would see, you'll feel immediately its personal implication for you. Now that personal implication is part of the reaction of mind to itself, as I mentioned. It's not something separate. There's no me outside that's now having a relationship to this experience. It's the mind having a relationship to itself. And as we become wiser in meditation, we no longer take sides within that experience to pit one thing against the other. The sense of self against the state of mind. I don't like this. How do I get out of it? I need to get through this. This is awful. And the whole laboring tone that an unpleasant state of mind could be. And so when we get wiser in our meditation, we create less of a rift less of a harshness, less of a reactivity between the sense of I, which is arising within the mind, and the state of mind, which is also arising. And that relationship becomes quieter, not as noisy, because all of this has been embellished by a strong narrative of I, me, and mind, has it not? And when there's a strong narrative, there's a strong representation, as I mentioned, a strong personalization of everything that's going on. And this this embodied narrative is what kind of locks in and freezes the whole thing into its representative form. So this, this sense of I, as we become quieter and whatever state of mind is rising, the Buddha is telling us or giving us the instruction not to do anything about it. You don't do anything about the state of mind that's arising and you don't do anything about the I that's having that state of mind. You're just quiet with each one. There's just the awareness of both of those rising together. That sense of not taking sides or pitting one side against the other creates a wholeness of mind, a completion of mind. Now that completion of mind is not another state of mind having a sense of completion about those two fractured parts of mind. <laughs> that would just be fracturing out a third thing, wouldn't it? No, this completion is the awareness, is the space that holds both halves. So we infuse less energy into the I or less energy into the state of mind and the reaction we have to that. And that energy becomes a part of the awareness, the space that holds both of those contentious parts. And there is a greater sense of wholeness in, of mind a greater sense of awareness of each of those things occurring within mind, but no sides being taken to either one. 
this, when this, you reach this point in the evolution of practice, it is the first time, perhaps, that you feel true love. Always before, the I has been trying to love the other side of the issue, which is just a recoiling reaction to not liking it at all. And so it tries to offset or counterset the unpleasant feelings it really has in its truth about this state of mind by bringing out love to it. And that's really further division and further acrimony in relationship to those two. It's trying to appease it by talking to it. But wholeness of mind is appeasement through stillness, through non-reactivity. It's not by cantankerous speaking or creating a new narrative that tries to seal the two halves together. It's by releasing the need to do anything about either side. And then there is a feeling of the wholeness of consciousness. That wholeness of consciousness embraces both. It's not coming from you. It is not induced by you. But is very tangible in its effect. And you feel absolutely no sense of either personalization for what's occurring or that you need to do anything about it. Nor do you feel that you need to squash out the ego that may be arising in relationship to that very response. Both are just immaterial workings of the mind that are being seen by the whole con within the whole context of the space that holds it. So the Buddha is pointing a path and a journey towards that end. That's what this, these... <coughs> these foundations are meant to do. And this foundation provides the key element to being able to do just that. As I mentioned, he's saying, see each state as just this. It's just this. He's trying to take the narrative out of the state of mind. He's not trying to have us talk nicely to it. When you see something as just this, that's an impersonal uh, presentation. It's not just this that means something about me. It's just this period. It's just this. And we can start seeing ourselves and seeing our minds with, oh, it's just this. It's just this. It's just anger. It's just fear. It's just worry. And the next step, because see, the narrative... What the narrative does when we get locked in the discourse between the two halves is it tries to work its way out of what it sees through further com communication, through further talking, through further noise about what it sees. It tries to tell a story, a richer story, a further story in the future about how I have to settle this problem that seems to be that I'm facing now. So it future speaks. <coughs> I need to go sit. That's future speaking. Right? I have, a I have all this anger. I need to go sit. That's the sense of I imparting a conversation to the other side of the mind, trying to work out a way so that I no longer have to feel anger. And I don't mean to say that, that there's anything wrong with that. 
that's an evolution of understanding as well. But we're trying to bring this current. We're trying to see what the Buddha is really saying for us to do in our meditation practice. This has implications for each one of us. You can't rush this process, obviously. To rush it is, is absurd, because to rush it is to say, I don't like where it is now. I need it to be somewhere else. You see, can't, there's nothing you can do about it, because everything you're doing about it is further incites the state of mind further, doesn't it? Or you can say, all right, I've, I've got it figured out now. Right? I'll just detach from it. I'll turn my back. I'll step back a few steps. I'll have some distance to it. And you're doing that because you're aversive to it and you want distance from it. And the fractional mind distances itself. And it can. You can, you can turn and if you're really good at it, you can see it almost like a, the, you're looking at the wrong end of binoculars at it. And uh, you, can, uh, you can get into some psychotic state where you have disassociated completely from yourself. You can go that far back. I wouldn't advise that. <laughs> that's sending yourself in the opposite direction of the reality that's present in here. So what can we do? You see, it just... If there was something to do, I would have long since found it. Because believe me, who wants to do nothing? Right? When you, when it's, when you do nothing, it, you, you're, you just, that's the worst, isn't it? <laughs> that's the worst. Because you, you just, and so I've looked everywhere. <laughs> and yet there's nothing to do. You'll find teachers that uh, can promote doing. And there are skillful means that are always available for us to work to level the reactive playing field so that we can then, after the skillful means, do nothing. But most of us get lost within those skillful means and never come around to doing nothing because it feels so good to do something skillfully to it. <laughs> and so the, this, the doing nothing of this is, I just want to, I just want to give it a moment of true recognition of how difficult it is. This is hard stuff. Not only is it hard doing nothing, but when you do nothing, you begin to fade from the picture. When you absolutely do nothing, not try to do nothing, because trying to do nothing keeps you very much in the picture. But when you really do nothing, <laughs> in other words, there's no movement at all to do anything, then that is what I call surrender. When you're, you, you, every, every cell is at ease with itself. Uh, and that then is the end of anything being made into something. Just, I know these words, I know we can t tie ourselves into all kinds of knots with words. Okay? But I'm going to do it. <laughs> when you do something, whatever you do it to, you make it into something. By your doing. 
because you project onto that thing, that state of mind, whatever reaction you're having to it. And you're bringing fear response to that neutral thing called a state of mind. And then from your projection onto that neutral thing called the state of mind, you have to do something about it when you're the one that created the problem to begin with. So we create the problem and try to work out the fix. But we try to work out the fix by keeping ourselves in the picture, but keeping ourselves in the picture is the fix that we have to work out. Now, have I got you in a complete knot? So over time, the personal gets worked out, gets worked through, gets worn away like granite, water touching granite. It's not usually a speedy process because along the way, and why it takes often as long as it seems to take, is because we try everything before we try surrender. And so we're in, the, during the course of all of our meditations, we are often providing one strategy after another to do something about the sense of I, forgetting that the sense of I is even existing because we're doing something about the state of mind. And we keep forgetting that over and over again. And we keep personalizing what is occurring over and over again. And anytime you personalize what it is that's occurring, you, the narrative about what you're saying is occurring is getting longer, deeper, and more impactful and more intense. This, is, this isn't just Buddhism. This is life. This is the way we live. Understand it. I don't care if you're Hindu, Christian, or whatever it is. This is, this is the problem at hand. This isn't the Buddha method. I don't have to deal with the sense of self if I'm Christian. <laughs> That's nonsense. That's nonsense. What you think, if you just go into a pleasant place called heaven, that you will have solved the, that riddle of pursuing pleasure and creating yourself in the midst of that, and that heaven won't be just an experience, another experience you're having that happens to be very pleasurable, it solves nothing. It doesn't solve the problem at all. It just gives us a pleasant place to dwell. This is at the root. This is at the root. That's why few people are interested in it. They would rather pursue the strategy that feels most accessible to them and that's the one which allows more pleasure. And what's better than that than hoping for heaven? But when, you're, when you have learned you know, the limitation of any feeling state or any feeling tone, it's like, huh, who cares really? I have had states in meditation that are so sublime, if I had had them earlier on, I probably would still be in them. <laughs> but I had them when I was ripe enough in my wisdom that I is like, so what? It sounds, 
It sounds uncaring somehow, but it's not uncaring. In fact, the temptation to lean into those states is, can only happen in the lack of caring. When you really care, then you don't care what's arising. If you do care what's arising, you don't really care. I told you I was tying you in knots. So this willingness to say just this, let's just look what we do. See, when we're sitting in meditation and things are arising, it's just this, it's just this. We're actually deconditioning the narrative out of the state of mind. We're not talking so much about it or to it. We're not reacting. It's just quieter. You see, you're just, there's not as much going on, not as much babble. I oh, got this, this reminds me of all of that after a while. It's like, so what's happening is that it's becoming impersonal. Very strong sense of narrative, very strong sense of personal representation and implication about me. That's why we talk about it a lot. That's why we try to do something about it, is that it, 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 it says this is who I am. But as we begin, just through the repetition of seeing, as we see again and again what that state is, and that it really is just arising, and it, I can't even... I don't even, it just arises from conditions. What, I mean, how, who are we going to blame for it? And we've seen enough states of mind over the course of all the times we have practiced where we say, well, okay, so it's this one, this one, this one. What, it's like a file cabinet where they're just kind of, it doesn't really matter really. And so it just, you, we start deconditioning the narrative, the story, out of the state of mind. So the state of mind becomes quieter. We're not talking as much about it or having to talk as much to it. And so as it gets quieter, the distance between it and the sense of self decreases. Because I'm not resisting it as much. And there comes a point when there's just stillness and the state of mind no longer holds what the narrative said it held and so it becomes quiet, as to, quiet along with the sense of self and then there's just stillness. So how do you end the state of mind? by ending your narrative to it. And the narrative to it is also why and what holds you apart from it. And so the true acceptance or the bridging of that is through the stillness in which the two halves come together. It's actually very beautiful. I may not have said it beautifully, but it, it's so it's just so, sometimes you know something by its sheer beauty, and that certainly has it. So how does it, first of all, we have to become disillusioned by the states of mind and our relationship to them. We have to 
the, the particular way that we have been working with ourselves in the chatter narrative of keeping things at bay, we have to become disillusioned to that. We have to become disillusioned with the personal. We have to see that the personal is never going to really allow us to bridge the differences. And this is where it gets sticky. This is where it gets difficult because our whole life, remember, each state of mind represents a kind of home. In each of our homes, there have been moments in which we have, that is not the home we wanted. There's a lot of argument and whatever. And also there are times when it is the most comfortable place to be. And all of that together is what we call home. Well, that's all together, that's what we call our reaction and our patterns to the states of mind. Some are good, some are bad, but we can deal with it, you know. It's a now we have to change homes. And that's a very, that's a, a tremendously unsettling feeling to realize that this is going to mean shifting paradigms. Right? So it's difficult. But we also realize and are compelled by the fact that if we don't shift paradigms, that life will continuously move in the direction of this kind of reactive discourse, detachment, reaction, all of the different ways that we try uh, at odds with ourselves to try to come to some kind of common peace. And so this sense of willing to be quiet is the strategy that arises for us. The willingness to be quiet. That's why quiet holds, quiet isn't something we, mostly we uh, have a strong attraction to. We don't like quiet at all. Look what happens when you have a moment or two of quiet. You quite likely, if you're like most people, turn on a radio or fill it with some kind of noise because quiet is unsettling to us. Quiet feels, well, it's like what's go nothing's going on here. You know, there's nothing to, nothing to kind of engage with. So there's a way that we have to adapt to the value and benefits of being quiet. So all along the way, as we become less personally involved with our states of mind, what our practice looks like is greater sense of quietude. And what that looks like is that it can, you know, that if we, it's kind of, we can fill it with being lost in thought. That's one way we can, you know, nothing's going on here, so I'll just think my way into some, something going on. And so if you're finding your practice full of rumination, you might want to look at that. Another way we do that is by, um, is by uh, creating drama in our life. So we have something going on. And then the sitting represents time away from that drama. But the drama is the real central focus point of our life. And that way the quietude is well received. But it's just in relationship to the drama that we perpetuate. It's not quiet for its own sake. Something else that we often do is that when we are quiet with something uh, and we begin, we don't look to see what the value is within the field of that quiet. We are, it's so 
different than what we're normally used to, which is the noise of the narrative and the story constantly churning itself out, that we don't, we don't value, we don't look around sufficiently to see the value of being quiet. And I would really encourage that when there are moments in your meditation when you are quiet, just, instead of it freaking you out, <laughs> just see what's there that's of benefit. Like now. Some of you are coming and some of you aren't. I can feel it. But if you do come, the shift of paradigm is enormous. There's stillness. There's breath, infinite breath. There's, you're not trapped. You don't feel compelled by noise. There's the sense of I is very differentiated. It's very different. It's very, there's a, what happens is that it expands not to the center of a, a circle, but to the entire space that encompassed the noise. And you, after spending some time there, you begin to appreciate the value that it, it offers. As I sometimes use the analogy, you know, from the earth, from just the laws of the earth, the moon seems abhorrent. I don't want to go there, it's gray, you know, it's dusty. I don't want to go there. But it looked like people that were up there had some fun. They were bouncing on their less gravity, new a new sense of potential in themselves. And that I dare say that this shift of paradigms is very much like that. You know, if, if all you want is the noise of your reactivity, because that's what you'll keep coming back to. That'll be your bottom line, that you're, you have not played out the desires for this world and all of everything that it can give you. And so you are not about to stay empty. And so no matter how impersonal you will discover your mind, you will make it personal again. Because the impersonal just represents a side issue of meditation. Your real life is about getting on with the business of desiring and fearing. And so sometimes meditation is just an alleviation of the pressure of the real strategy we want from life. Until it takes over as the real strategy. And then nothing can hold it back. Because when you invite, when we invest the energy of our intention into the truth of this, it clears away very quickly. Very quickly. But some of us play games with it. You know, we have a moment of it and, and then we try to pretend that we can, you know, I've, I'm, I just had a moment of emptiness. 
you know. And then when things, reactions come back, which they do when we're playing any kind of game with this, we'll one-up that thing. Oh, I, I'm not my reactions. I'm not my reactions. I don't have to pay attention to this. It's all empty. That spiritual one-upmanship. You're lost in thought. Why don't you, you know, why don't you just uh, let them go? See, what holds us down, what holds us back are two things. One is the lack of intention for us to go forward because we're just not ready. We're not, we haven't matured sufficiently to be finished with the paradigm we're in. And the second one is that when we, even when we are finished with the paradigm that we're in, what pulls us back is the pain that we have refused to acknowledge within that old paradigm. And it keeps pulling us back into ourselves, into our reactive patterns, into a, the dialogue of self and other. Because anything not faced has to have that effect upon us. Anything that we're unconscious to will take on a reality of its own because it's unconscious. And therefore, the hidden areas and assumptions within ourselves that we refuse to look at, that we rather bypass to get to emptiness, will tug us right back into full embodiment until and unless we are ready to go flush those out completely. We can get by with nothing. You can't get over anything. That's why this is a total sum game. There's no way to maneuver out of having to look because having to look is what we're maneuvering into. That's being conscious. And you can't leave a single grain of sand unconscious. Mental sand. But some of us would like to uplift the whole thing and run straight towards emptiness and have to not have to deal with the pain at all. There was a, in our hospice program, there was a man who came in the front door and um, he said he wanted to be a volunteer and so we trained him and then he went into our inpatient unit and he started to be with the patients, but what his real motives was is he was going to go to each patient and tell them that they were all empty, that they had nothing to fear about death at all, that death was empty, and that uh, they could just relax and die. <laughs> so as soon as we caught wind of that, we threw them out. Right? Not because it was wrong, because the that level of understanding requires enormous amount of work in order to mature to. And just to say it as a philosophy is much more disruptive than helpful. Much more. And that's why someone asked the Dalai Lama why he talks so incessantly about kindness instead of emptiness. And he says it's safer. When you talk about kindness, you're encouraging somebody forward at whatever level they're currently in to look, to see, 
and to evolve out of themselves at their own time, within their own timing. When you whip somebody with emptiness, you do just the opposite. So it's through kindness that we become empty. Through patience. In fact, the paramis like patience. Any of them that are immature in ourselves, we can see that there's a formation of self that's creating that immaturity of impatience because the parami itself, the awakened mind, doesn't contain impatience. And therefore, when there is a reaction of impatience, you realize that there's more work to do in being patient. Same thing with the precepts. The precepts are indications of an unawakened state. Because an awakened state is a non-harming state. I bypassed so much of this, I don't know how to get back into it anymore. You know, many of us get involved in meditation because the personal is, uh, we're feeling the pain of the personal. And because we have no other frame of reference but the personal, we uh, attempt to add uh, a new lining, a golden lining to the personal so that maybe meditation can make me calmer, can decrease my stress, can do something to the personal so it changes the personal to an accommodated space. And we get in and we begin to, those changes do occur, but we also begin to see ourselves objectively for the first time. And we begin to see through that objectivity the pain that any aspect of the personal causes and our grasping and our attachment and our fear and our avoidance. And if we're willing to learn those lessons rather than just with dogged determination keep moving towards more refined states of mind where I can be a better person, if we're willing to listen to the feedback that the mind is constantly offering at the, about the limitation of the personal way that we relate to the mind and the pain associated with it, then we'll get quieter because we have no other choice.
and what we give up in getting quieter pales by comparison to what we receive. The benefits of being present. Present is quiet. Present by its nature by, is intrinsically still. It is just our restlessness to get out of the present to profit from what the future may offer that creates the noise. And so this sense of wholeness is not distant. It's not somewhere else. It's not in the future. It's in our willingness to be present without qualifications. Without resistance. Forming no other contingency. No other possibilities. No other strategies. What does that look like? like this. Just this, says the Buddha. It looks like just this. Okay, well, thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? And what does your sitting look like? Can you leave yourself alone? Okay, good. So if there are any comments or questions, I'd be happy to see if I can answer them. Yes. So the, is the thought stream seem, seem endless to you? Yeah, they seem like I'm not, uh, I don't want them to come, but they're there, and I don't know if I have access to keep them from coming. Okay, so it's not whether thoughts come. I, I just want to reframe this because it's a common, it's a common um, mistake that many, many people make, and it has to be, keep being corrected over and over again. We hear the word silence and stillness, and we see our mind just chattery and noisy. And we think, okay, I don't want them to come, but I don't know what, I, there's nothing I can do. There is nothing you can do about them. You can, there's nothing you can do about them. There's nothing you can do about them. There are neurons firing, okay? You can't stop a neuron from firing. 
It, they just fire. And they fire at different levels and subtleties, and they just keep firing. So the stillness we are seeking is not the end of thought. It's the end of thought that is contentious. It is the end of thought that divides itself out. It's the end of thought that can't be seen within the spaces of the rising. So focus in on hearing the thought, holding the emotion, not changing the thought to being quiet or altering the emotion to be something else. Okay? Our, our tendency and our response is usually to tinker with the content but that's not what we're trying to do here. The content changes on its own. Thoughts become quieter on their own when infusion, when the infusion of intention and interest goes from the content and processes of the thought to the space that holds them. When we're more interested in seeing and hearing what it is that's going on than participating in what's going on. You see? So use that as your main strategy rather than trying to quiet the mind. Trying to quiet the mind actually makes it more noisy because your efforts to try to quiet the mind are a subtle sense of noise and thought about what it is that's going on and the way you want it to occur, you see? It's very subtle and it's something we all get, many, many times we'll lose our way in. And so we just keep reminding ourselves over and over again that the stillness we seek is not the, the stillness away from any thought at all. It's the stillness in which the thoughts move, right? So the space in which they move is the stillness we seek. Yes? Um, I thought I knew the answer to this. No, I don't think I know the answer to it. But in the beginning of the talk, you were talking about the difference between the I and the thoughts and the emotions. What would the I would the I be consciousness or awareness or ego? What is the I? I was in the beginning of the talk. I was talking about the I and the uh, aware and the uh, state of mind. The sense of I, when we look at it, what is it? It's a very good question. Let's not philosophize it or give it a, a conceptual abstract name. Let's see if we can figure out what it is by actually experiencing what the I is. So when we do it from that direction, it takes on a very different tone of intentionality than just establishing a concept, which is more noise, to a concept that is the sense of I itself. See? So let's just see what it looks like. You see, now you have to provide space around it, which means you can't be so tightly and um, protective of it Right? One of the reasons that it has such a central place to play within our meditation is because it's so protected. We have it so well defended. Nothing can come in. We just, we just keep um, rejecting everything that comes in. Anything that comes in that implicates us, we're rejecting it. We're going out and pushing it away. So we never really see what it's going on because it's too self-protected. Right? So we have to be willing for it not to be so protected. And that's huge. That's, okay, so one of the ways that we do that is through radical accountability. That is, we just don't let anything be projected away from what it truly is. We don't pretend that people are doing things to me. We just hold all of the 
ways that we project out onto life, we hold those emotions as being something to see. And so it takes the defense mechanism away when you're radically accountable. When you're radically accountable, you're not defending what you see. You're just allowing it to be present, right? Okay, so when we're no longer defending what is there, then we can ask the question, what is there? And we get very quiet, we look at it, and we just see that it is a, a belief or an attachment or a invested uh, identity with thought. It's thought invested with identity, with the sense of I, which is just a thought, which is a mind, which is a pr product of mind, isn't it? A thought's just a product of mind. So I said, okay, okay, I see that. I can get a feeling for that. You get, a, you get a sense of its resonance physically in you. Now, you are holding the space in which the eye is arising. Right? Now you, you, all of us have to do this. This isn't, this isn't a, something for you to write down and memorize, right? You have to welcome this, back, this journey back into yourself like that. Finally, you come to the place where there's nothing that's arising anymore because everything is being seen. So I'm just curious, is, is the inquiry process a skillful means that would be used like to take us out of this being? Starting in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we talk about just that. We talk about discernment, and we talk about looking uh, in terms of knowing what it is that's arising, the ability to discern and look. And some of that is skillful means. Some of that is very intentional ways of looking and investigating. <clears throat> so yes, you know, what you do when you're investigating is that you have to get very quiet and turn something over and really look at how it, what's underneath it, like a, a rock in a stream. You know, you want to get all the, you want to get everything about it. And sometimes you're just compelled to do that because when it's just lying in the stream, you don't know enough about it to completely relax with it. But once you've turned it over and you've seen it in different directions and you've investigated and all of its implications, then it's like, okay, that's enough. Now we can be quiet again. Right? So we'll, we'll get to that next time. How is the awareness of space different from the sense of I, because it's also a thought? The sense of space is awareness. There's not two things. That does not have a placeholder. It's not a position. It's like if you were in a C, S, E, A, of seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G. A C of seeing. 
all around you was seeing. You would be known, wouldn't you? And that sea of seeing would be endless space. It's benevolent space. It's not trying to do something to your own placeholder called me. It's endless. Okay? So don't just get a sense. Just get a sense of the quiet that surrounds the eye. Just get a sense. Okay, y'all. <laughs> we'll call it an evening. Thank you all very much. Hope I didn't take you too far out there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.